Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Rock. Ahoy, friends. Thank you for tuning into Truth and Justice. You are listening to the Friday follow up for season 12, episode 64 Lingering Questions. As the season is coming to a close, we are left with some tough, unanswered questions. This week, Bob addressed a few of these lingering questions, and it's brought up many more. Today, we are Sans Janet. But Bob and I are here to dig into your lingering questions. All right. Well, thanks, Zach. Like Zach said, we are uh, we're missing Janet today. Um, she, she had uh, she had a situation going on with her uh, with one of her dogs, literally right before we recorded. So um, she is not going to be joining us today. Why she deals with that? Uh, with that said, when you're hearing this, hopefully everything will be smooth. But but just so you know, if things are a little bit clunky today, happens to be the day we're using some new software for our stream, and the day that Janet wrote herself um, notes for her to follow in her own kind of shorthand and, and they are now in front of Zach, who's going to be reading them. So we, if there, if things are a little clunky, we're just, uh, it's going to be a fun, fun episode. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's going to be a good one. Uh, with, I can, I apologize right now for anybody's name. I mispronounced because I'm not as cool as JV and I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'm just not as good as JV. Right. So. I think, I think a blanket apology for mispronouncing, uh, yep. now would be, be good. Like, this person said, Right, go before, before we get into the uh, what all the people said, what did you think about uh, this week's episode? I really like the episode. It it does bring up some more questions. It's got questions for me too that are kind of my lingering questions that I wrote down that have nothing to do with this episode, but I feel like it's a point to jump off of here. Sure. And and right off the get go, I still want to know about this truck. The red truck is it a red herring? Is it something? That's a question we're probably never going to get answered, but mm-hmm. it's one of my top priorities of a lingering question you know i am I'm, I'm right there with you and and i, I want to make clear that i don't talk about the red truck much and there's been people like particularly on the facebook page that are are kind of frustrated they're like the red truck why aren't you talking about the red truck this red truck's important i just want you to make you guys want you guys to understand like i think it could be important too the problem is i just don't have there's nothing else we we i can do with it Right now, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, you know, the, be, be, all we know is it was there. We, the police didn't follow up on it. So I don't have, you know, any, anything to draw from. And as I mentioned, I think it was in last week's follow up. I went through, if you go through the timeline, even like, yeah, it could fit, but then maybe not because we don't know how long it took the fire trucks to get there. I was reading through though today. Um, uh, and the report is on our website, all the, all the documents for this week's episode are on the website, but there's one from, it was either Jim or Kendall Ellis's interview, the report from that. And they mentioned, I, I remembered in their interview that they had said that Kendall. Yeah. They, well, I think they're both up there. Oh, maybe I didn't put one in there. there Jim should be in there. It will be in there by Friday. But they, uh, I, I knew that, that, that they had went to help guide the fire trucks in, but either Jim or Kendall in their interview had said that 
They did that because they were up at the fire and they looked down and they could see in the neighborhood because, again, you know, lights stand out in that dark place. It, they said that it looked like the fire trucks were lost. You know, they said something to the extent of they could see the fire trucks driving around trying to find their way to the scene. And that's why they went down there. Um, but, so you know, w- with all those unknowns, we just don't know if I knew, like, you know, the fire truck passed the car or the the, the truck on the way to the crime on the way to the crime scene at at 10.01 p.m., then we'd have something to work with. But there's just there's so many unanswered questions. So don't so all I'm saying is don't think that I don't think it's important. There's just nothing else I can do with it. And, and as you're, you're saying that, we kind of have the idea of the Ellis's mentioning that maybe the fire truck was lost or stuck. In Steve's interview, Bumpincero is like when he's asking directions, he's totally in the wrong neighborhood. Yeah. And that was strange to me because it feels like he should know where they're at. Well, and, and I wondered why is he over there? Because because Bump and Sarah knew he was in the other neighborhood. Mm-hmm. He was looking at a map and he w- he wasn't, to me, it didn't sound, he wasn't communicating well that he was asking him about something from that other neighborhood. And that's why Steve was confused. He was like, I don't know where those streets are. Then, yeah. then eventually they figure out, they're, oh, they're talking about the, that other neighborhood. But I don't know why Bump and Sarah was talking about the other neighborhood. Unless there were, I mean... Unless they had something over there that they thought of, but I, I don't really understand why he was over there either. Yeah. And maybe he, I'd have to go back and listen again. Maybe he had said, but you, cause there's one of those, it's one of those things. It, it's almost like the, uh, Christian driving the Oldsmobile thing mm-hmm. where like they ask a question and then they, and then they spir- spiral out of control explaining something. And I don't think they ever come back to the reason they were asking it to begin with. Yeah. So one, one of my other lingering questions, which again, will not get answered is where's Becky's other shoe? Because I feel like that's a big one. Uh, to to me, that was one of the first things way back at the beginning made me think that she was like, she wasn't killed in the desert. Mm-hmm. I think if she was killed in the desert and moved, that then her shoe would either be in the desert or in the wheelbarrow or by her body. Like, I don't see them you know, leaving all the, I, like, I guess. So, so because people have said, well, maybe, maybe they took the shoe because it had evidence on it. Yeah. Um, but they picked her body up and put her into the wheelbarrow. So whatever evidence is on that shoe would also be on her other shoe. It seems like it, yeah. And her ankle and her socks and her, you know, in, in her legs. So it doesn't make sense to me that they would have taken this. So to me, like the shoe came off probably in the house, like either in a struggle in the house or as she was trying to flee the house or something like that. It doesn't, it doesn't add up to me that, that she lost her shoe out in the desert. Yeah. Where her body was. Yeah. Cause if anything, it would either be there or when they put it, you know, in the States theory, they take a wheelbarrow out there. And put her in it and bring her back to the house. Then, then, and if they grabbed the shoe, you'd think they would just throw it in the wheelbarrow with her, and it would still be in the wheelbarrow. Seems like it. Yeah, but it it was not. All right. Well, you want to jump into these listener questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, first question comes from Kathy K. Which is more common: a fire set to destroy DNA evidence, or a fire set due to strong emotions of hate and revenge? I I don't know if there's particular statistics about it. Okay. Um, I think, it, and, I, and I'm drawn back from memory, but but back in my days as a, as a firefighter and arson investigator, the, you know, the, the main motives for fire, uh, the number one motive was fraud, you know, for, for money, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of insurance, whether it's cars or houses with insurance fraud. Uh, and then the number two motive, they would always say, would be to cover up another crime, uh, and then, and then you would have, um, revenge was down the list, but those were the, but 
I, I can't tell you, and I don't know if there are particular statistics. That, there probably are. Um, as a matter of fact, it was one of the things I was going to uh, look up before we came on today. Then all the stuff with Janet, Janet happened. So I may try to to quickly look that up and uh, and come back to that here okay. in, in a couple of minutes. But but and and I can tell you from my experience, those were the order. I I've, I've actually never investigated a fire that was started out of revenge. Okay. I've never I've investigated a ton of fires and fought a ton of fires that were later proven to be fraud and I've investigated and fought probably it's not a lot probably close to a dozen over the 15 16 years that mm-hmm. I was in the fire department uh that were that were done to to cover up another crime. But nothing is just nothing as far as just like straight arson to mm, I've never had per, and again that's anecdotal so I don't know that that's that, that, that's you know a nationwide statistic, but for many, I, I never came across somebody who was mad at somebody else. So they burned their house down mm-hmm. or something like that. But so, I mean, it does obviously seem that it's way more common for it to be, to cover up evidence. Yeah. The, the top two, like I said, number one is usually insurance fraud of some kind. Okay. Uh, and then number two is usually to cover up another. Crime. Well, I think we can, we can, um, we can nix fraud on this one. Cause I don't think there's any way they're trying to get insurance money. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the next question comes from Kathy McElhaney. Has anything come to light that you feel points more to Becky being the target, or are you still convinced that John and or Vicky were? I've, I've seen nothing, to, in my opinion, to indicate Becky was the target. I, I, I think, you know, what Jim Clemente said when he kind of came back after we learned more about the case, the, the, the simplest way he put it was when we were in that live uh, recording in, in L.A. was when he said, if Becky was the first to die, she would have been in that fire. She would have been in the house and it made perfect sense, especially when we know the timeline. We know that the fire was burning before Becky was lit on fire. We don't know before she was killed. Uh, The idea of them shooting John and Vicky, lighting the house on fire, having had already killed Becky because she's the primary target. And then, you know, taking care of lighting the house on fire and then going out and getting her. uh, That doesn't that doesn't make any sense. Nothing about, you know, from the very beginning of this case, it was always. The the case doesn't make sense because we see behaviors that indicate that there is some level of sophistication, that there are, that the fire was started in an attempt to conceal the fact that a crime was committed. But then Becky's body is is burning right out in the open that makes it very obvious it was fire. That never, ever made sense. It was one of the things that really intrigued me about the case in the beginning. And then the only way for me that it does make sense is that Becky wasn't part of the plan. That she was not supposed to that be she there. Was an afterthought. Yeah, they didn't know she was there. She wasn't supposed to be there, and that they didn't even they didn't. She wasn't discovered. And there's theories about well, maybe she had left and came back. Uh, that that she came back and surprised the killers, or she was hiding in the house. Whatever the whatever the case may be, uh, to me, my interpretation of the crime scene and Jim's interpretation of the crime scene was that that. Becky wasn't supposed to be there. She wasn't part of the plan. And that's why her body was treated differently than everybody else's because the fire in the house was already burning. There was already people, you know, even in Jim's first interviews that, you know, they're, they, they see, they run out of time. They see cars coming. They see people coming. They've got to do something. We know now from the, the timing of the 911 calls of the people coming to the scene to the very earliest Becky's body could have been lit on fire of 946 that she was lit on fire while people were approaching the scene. Uh, and so there, it's like a, this moment of panic. If she was the target, she's not the last thing to get handled. Yeah. It, it does seem very much so like a, a last minute thing. All right. 
So as we said before, Janet put these together. So this is a, a combination question between Michelle, Emma, and Kelly. Can you elaborate at all on the possible alternate suspects? I know you don't know. Or I know you don't want to put the names out, but is there any background you can share or any connections between them and the crime? No, unfortunately, no. There's there's no way for me to give like some background of the information I've heard from these these sources that doesn't just just point a big finger at somebody where we don't have any evidence to point that finger at those people. So for now, I just need to I, I just need to to leave it alone. I really I just yeah, and I know that's frustrating and believe believe me, it's very frustrating for me too. Um, but it would just be incredibly irresponsible for me to do that. This kind of piggybacks off that. So it's from Kara or Kara for the unsubstantiated leads. Are you sharing those with the defense team? Yes. Yeah. And anything we come across, anything that I get from sources, people who reach out to me, all of that, I pass along um, either directly to. Uh, attorneys or to family members to pass on to to attorneys. So here's something from me that's not in this, but are are you fairly in contact with the defense team? I mean, is it has it been a, a pretty give and go? Not not in a whole lot of content. It, it contact. Um, you know they, they they don't reach out to me ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I will say that like, I've had no contact at all with with Christian's defense team. They were clear from the very beginning uh, that they didn't want to deal with any have any media involvement. Um, with Robert's team, uh, it, it's 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 pretty much a one way communication. If I find something, I send it to them. I let them know. I mean, I'll get some feedback. Thanks, appreciate that. We'll look into that. Um, and that's as far as it goes. I'm not, as I've said many times, I'm not privy to what they're doing, what they're building. They're not reaching out to me. Um, I did talk to them um, to one of the attorneys this week uh, as we were setting up for interviews for this week's final episode of the season. Um, which I'll talk about here at the end of the episode, but uh, for the most, but no, it's not a, there's not a lot of communication that goes back. And forth All right. There. That's good to know. Then I didn't, I honestly didn't know that. So we're, we're moving along here. These next questions are about the Mark interview that comes up. So okay. Valeria asks, can you confirm the timeline between law enforcement receiving the letter from Mark there and the interview that was played on Sunday and the death of Joe? Yes. Uh, so it, it goes like this. The letter is written from Mark. Well, by the investigator on Mark's behalf to the to uh, the investigators on January 27th of 2015. What no one knew at that time was uh, so what is that for nine days after that on February 5th, Joe died. OK, on February 23rd, police went to the Indio jail and interviewed Mark. And that's that you heard a portion of that interview uh, today. And then. They went and tried to track down Joe. His name is Joe Joe Riordan. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, they went to go track him down and found out that he had died on the fifth. And they go back for another interview after that. So this next part, I, and I'm going to paraphrase off this next part that Janet's written down, but it, it comes from Alexis and Holly, and they're kind of discussing like the idea that a lot of this info that Mark gave kind of fit. With Joe living in within walking distance of the victims, and he had connections to organized crime and and a few of those things, is, is there anything that actually proves any of that that he did live there? I I was unable to find, and it sounded like the, even in the second interview, the police were unable to um, find a lot of that information. Um, they weren't able to determine, so they got the information about where he lived at the time of the interview, which was in Palm Springs. Okay, and that's where. Mark was living with him. It was like in a in a trailer park, sounded like a mobile home park in Palm Springs. So they found that 
place. And is that the home that he said that Mark said he had given to him? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was the place. So, um, but it sounded like the police were unable to confirm that when he had owned a place or when he was living up in Pinion Pines. Um, I have not been able to find any records of when he lived there. doesn't mean he didn't. Uh, he probably did, but I don't, I don't know. I, I, so I, I haven't been able to track any of that information down and neither did, did the police. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So Donna C. Asked, or says, Bob says that Mark Thayer believed he was telling the police and wasn't asking for anything in return. And however, the police report in the interview on page four, lines one through four states that basically that he was asking for something in return. I guess I don't know what they're getting at. <laughs> well, so there's a report somebody had posted. I think it came from the other group, as I mentioned before. They have a different file than what I have. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I searched high and low. I don't have that report. Okay. I don't have a transcript for Mark Thayer's interview. I don't have a report for his interview. I have the letter he wrote, which is posted on our website, and I have the audio is all I have. But the, but in the report that they had posted, they said that Mark was asking for an early release or for his his case regarding the bicycle to be dropped uh, in there. So a couple things. One, to be clear, what I was saying was when I read the letter, it seemed like this was a promising lead because when I read the letter, Mark just he, he didn't ask for anything. He just said he wants to meet with them. He's willing to wear a wire. He's willing to testify in court. He didn't say anything about wanting anything in return. That's what I was talking about when I said it. Now, once you got into the interview, things things kind of fall apart. For starters, for me, the reason I didn't dig into it any further or after that was we find out through the interview that he didn't really know anything. Yeah, it does seem to be that way. Yeah. In the letter, it seemed like, oh, he had some good information about him living up there. And, it, and then when he starts to talk and he's, he's, he kind of confessed to him about this crime in Arizona, which is super interesting. Well, and what it felt like to me is it felt like Mark – Instead of Mark knowing something about the crime, Mark felt that Joe knew something about the crime. And that was his entire lead was that Mark feels that this Joe guy knows something. Not that he even committed it, just knows something about it. Right. Yeah. And that, yeah. And that was like when it all comes, when they, when they start really poking him and pushing, like, what is it that you know? Like, what is the information you have? It's, well, he had just said that, you know, he mentioned there was a fire and he didn't like that, that he thought that Smith kid was a snot. Yeah, I thought that was a little strange that that yeah. was mentioned like that. It didn't really seem like they had a lot of comment or that they didn't have a lot of connection. It just seemed like 
he maybe had possibly seen him on an interview or maybe the families kind of live by each other. I don't know exactly how I that mean, went down. I have no idea what the, what the connection is there. Um, uh, you know, there is the interesting part as, 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 uh, as Teresa points out in the, in the YouTube chat that, uh, supposedly according to that, that Joe, according to the interview, Joe used a firearm and arson, uh, in that Arizona case, which it, you know, yeah, that, that's, that's certainly curious. It's, it's interesting. And there's, and there's, there's an MO thing there, but like that, I don't th- like, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because what, because really what he had, it was, he had committed this other crime and he thinks maybe he knows something or has some involvement. The other one has no evidence to back that up. Of course he's dead. They can't interview him. Um, as far as him wanting stuff, it gets, if you listen to the entire interview, which I didn't put, you know, I didn't put the entire interview out there because it's just a lot of rambling nonsense. The, the investigators that are talking to him are very clear, right from the very beginning, telling him, why don't you understand? This has nothing to do with your case. We're not giving you anything for your case. We're not doing anything with your case. We're only here to talk about the Pinion Pines case. Uh, and, and Mark brings it, but, but he does, Mark doesn't say, at least not what I recall hearing. He doesn't say, um, well, I'll tell you this if you get me out of here. He suggests a few times. He he starts talking about how well there it came to like he was charged with grand theft because the bike was valued at over nine hundred and fifty dollars or something. Okay, and he was like, but they're you know he was he was talking about we're working on that because it wasn't they're trying the fair market value really was like five hundred, which would drop it out of grand theft and. And and I'm supposed to you know, th- you know I'm supposed to get out pretty soon because of this and that. And he does say. Um, yeah, I think I, I described it as a field trip. He kind of says, well, you know, I can, I can have access to his place and he's got a box with ammunition in it and I can get you there. You know, if you guys can get me out of here. And at one point it sounds like he's saying like, if you get me, like if you, if you get me freed, I can go take you there. But then he later talks about like, if you can even just get me out of here for a few, you know, for a few hours, we can go look at it. And, and he definitely was wanting something in return. You hear that coming through. He yeah. wasn't super direct about wanting something in return, not as direct as it came through in the report. But again, the bottom line to me was, what does he know? We have a, we have a dead man who he says knew that there was a fire up there, which everybody knew, and thought that Christian Smith was a snot. Yeah. That's the extent of what he knew. Do we know if Mark knew that, that Joe had passed away at this point? He didn't. So he finds out in the second interview. Okay. Yeah, uh, when they come back in and talk to him, they they start explaining to him. They're like, "Well, actually, you know, he just he just recently passed away." And he says, "Oh, that explains why he hasn't been getting back to me. I kept writing him letters." And mm. he said, "And actually, one of the, or either writing letters or calling him." And he said, "He said I even said in one of my uh, um, one of my communications with him that you better be dead, not talking to me." <laughs> and he was dead. Oh wow. So Teresa asks, "Was Joe R's number ever compared to the records we have on this case, or was his photo ever shown to anybody involved?" No, it wasn't. I don't know what his number is, um, and I've never seen. I haven't seen a, a, a picture of him. Okay, but nobody. No, this was the, as far as I know. That was the after that conversation. That was the end of the looking into uh, Joe Riordan. So moving on, I, I think this is probably the big part of the episode. At least for me, it was the big part of the episode was the interview with neighbor Steve. Mm-hmm. So this is a. This is a combo question here from Sarah, Jennifer, Kelly, and Susan. They all kind of want to know, have we already met Steve? Um, no, we've heard about Steve in passing. So if you go on our, on our website and look at the case docs for this week, I put up every, every mention of Steve Russell that I came across in the case file up there. So, cause one of the things I was confused about was 
it's clear that he had had some contact with police mm-hmm. prior to this. And, and I didn't know when that was. Well, it, it's in one of the, I think it's Keener's report or somebody, you know, he says that he went down and talked to what he called the onlookers. He, he talked to some of the onlookers that were there. And Steve Russell was one of the, the onlookers. And he says in the report, he didn't know his name was Steve Russell till later. Um, and and it, it was kind of a point of interest. I think we might have even talked about it a while back because that when they we talked to him, Steve had a like a black eye. And he'd asked about the black eye. I don't know. Oh, I do remember, remember that. that. I do remember that. Yeah. That was a long time ago. So that was Steve Russell. He had a, yeah, he had, it was, it was a year ago. That man, that was, I do remember that. Yeah. Wow. So, so he, he had a black eye in the report and it says in the report that, that, uh, he had said he had just had some kind of eye surgery mm-hmm. is why he had the black eye. Yeah. Um, uh, and also in that interview, he says, and it's, it's on the website and I'll, and I'll touch on some of this on Sunday too, just to, when I have it in front of me, when I can read it, um, uh, but essentially, he's you know he said he didn't care for the family that 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 were killed up there. He was asking right then like how many bodies they found, wanted to know who was who was home. Uh, he says that everybody up there uh, that he has a water truck that he a lot of times he hauls water when there's a fire. But he had been asleep that night, and his, and his neighbor came knocking on his door. I don't know which neighbor knocked on his door. Mm. I think it might have been Randy Paulson. Not sure about that. Um, uh, but he said, but he says that people didn't like it sounded, it sounded like he, he was one of the, you know, he helped fix up the roads and take care of roads and John and Vicky didn't contribute any money like everybody else to the roads that they drove fast, it, like all this stuff. We had talked about all this a long time ago, um, that, you know, that, that he didn't, he didn't like, like them because they didn't contribute to the roads, but they drove fast and kicked up dust all over the place. So a quick follow up on this. Um, they did ask, have you talked to Steve? I've not talked to Steve. No. Okay. And then, uh. Do we know if the do we know if this phone call was initiated by Steve or was it the other way around? Was it, the police? It was initiated him? by Steve. Okay. Um. If you caught at the very end, Bumpetero says that was a phone call from Steve Russell at whatever time. Um. But 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 obviously, so so the first contact was there on the scene, and then and the next thing we have is uh, they interview Randy Paulson, who was the other deputy sheriff mm-hmm. that kind of lived directly down the hill. Like, like if you, if you left the Friedley's driveway or Vicky and John's driveway and went through like just the brush down to the next road, Randy Paulson lived right there. He's, he was a, a Riverside deputy. Um, they interviewed him and he told them that, you know, they, they said, they said, we're looking somebody told us that there was a kid up there and he had a black eye and he's like, yes. And he was like, no, nah, it's not a kid. It was, it's, he's like 35 years old. That's Steve. He lives right down the road here. Uh, and he confirmed, he's like, yeah, he had, he had some kind of something wrong with his eye, had eye surgery. He, but he was off work for like six months. Like it was confirmed that, uh, that that's why he had the black eye was because of the, I had, I had completely forgotten all of that. I mean, that's how long this case has been going on. I, I did too. So even when I went through the interview this week, um, it didn't click to me that that that's who they were talking about then until I was going back through and uh, and going through those documents. So that's so you have he's on the scene. Randy tells him who it is. And then I'm, I'm I don't know if he just called back or if somebody called him. He was like the one neighbor. It seemed like they were following up with because of the black eye thing. They were they had questions mm-hmm. about it. Um, so. Uh, the last part of this question is, do we have any reason to suspect him of any involvement? Could he be inserting himself or is he just being helpful? Uh, good question. I didn't, I didn't see enough. Um, 
I certainly didn't see enough there to say he's he's a suspect or a person of interest. So I'll, my take on it is he was being nosy. Yeah, more too. than anything else. And I, I I think sometimes we tend to overanalyze what some of these people do because mm-hmm. we're we're in this true crime space and we want to we want to find somebody. But we are also doing exactly the same thing, and we're being nosy, and we're we're prodding and asking yeah. questions. And I that's all I saw from him was I just felt like the questions he was asking was more just to be nosy and to try to know something about the case yeah. rather than to try to insert himself or, or push a, a certain agenda. Yeah, I I feel the same way about it, and that's like what I said. Like my first thing was, well, that's a that's annoying. You know, mm-hmm. that, that he said, you know, like I, I've, I've been investigating scenes before and had the person <laughs> like, well, actually, you know that uh, if you check over here, that's how fire starts. Like, no shit. Um, uh, and then, and then of course, like to, to, to validate that, because there are a lot of people that have, that have that, um, have that concern. Um, I do validate the, the, and, and, and agree with the fact that it did, there is something to someone inserting themselves in investigation. Right. So they're like, like you, I could see the, I, what I'm saying is I could see the perspective from the people that are like, it sounded like he kind of wanted to know where they were at. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted to know what, what they knew, um, which is like, that's, that's a fair assessment. I'm certainly not saying, Nope, that's not the case. I didn't get that feeling from him. I was more along like what you thought that it seemed more like he was, you know, he was just kind of being nosy. Yeah. Um, and then, and then the big thing for me was like, I was listening to him. I'm like, yeah, that's, all, that's exactly what like, like, yeah, go back there and look for, you know, we had, um, I want to circle back to a little bit from last week. Cause there was somebody who made a post on the, on the Facebook page that, that turned into a big long conversation. First of all, um, it was listener. Chris had posted, he, he put up a map kind of countering what I had said that the, um, you know, that the police, they, they didn't interview the neighbors. They didn't canvas the neighborhood. And so he put up a map with like check marks on all the people that they interviewed and said, well, look, see, they, they did interview these people. They did a good job. Um, or, you know, as, as he said, sure, I wish they did more, but in his opinion, that was an adequate job. And, and, and my take, so like one of the, one of the people on that list was Jim Ellis. Well, they didn't talk to inter- Jim Ellis. They didn't canvas Jim Ellis. They talked to Jim Ellis in 2015, nine years later. Mm. Uh, that, and then in, in, in uh, Barbara Wright. You know, she's checked off. They interviewed Barbara Wright. They interviewed Barbara Wright in 2015, or maybe even later than that, before trial. And again, these are the they didn't even go through and and check the 911 like go through the dispatch log. Who called 911 and go talk to all of them and see what time did the we, we don't even have a dispatch log other than the one call that came in that initiated them them toning out the fire department. Um, we don't know, like we don't, they didn't check like phone records from the fire department to see when calls came in. They didn't check the other 911 calls because there were several to see who all was calling in. They didn't do any of that stuff. Barbara Wright was one of those people that called 911 and they didn't interview her. Um, and, and then the rest of them, like on a map, it spread out. They interviewed Carissa Farley. Look, she lives way over there mm-hmm. and they interviewed, you know, Tim Summerlee and he lives way down there and they, and they interviewed Randy Paulson and he lives way over here. But it's very deceiving to say that or because they interviewed all those people at the scene. They didn't go to their houses and interview those people. They, they literally deputy Keener walked out and, and started talking to the, as he put it, the onlookers and asking a couple of questions there. Um, so that, that's one thing, but that, that, that led to uh, a, a discussion about the way he put it, you know, why, why do I jump to, there had to be, somebody behind Jackie's house 
which turned into you know kind of derailed and went in a whole nother a whole nother direction. And I want to and I just the only reason I want to bring this up is I want to point out I didn't say there was someone behind Jackie's house. What I was pointing out was we have a lot of unknowns, and I have more questions, and so we have to leave. For me, we have to leave open a lot of possibilities. One of which being someone in Jackie's house. It's also for, for you know it, it, to further break that whole thing down, right? So it, the way he put it, she heard a noise in front of her house, and she went there, and they probably had already driven away. But that's inserting your thoughts into what she, what, what I'm doing is doing a statement analysis and then analyzing what she said. She didn't say. I heard a noise in the front of my house. She said the dog was barking. It woke, you know, I was half asleep. The dog was barking, which alerted me. And then I heard, um, I heard a noise that sounded like a car in my driveway. Well, the first thing that everybody needs to be aware of is that her driveway runs all the way up the side of her house. And anytime I've been there and she doesn't live there anymore, but whoever lives there now where the car is parked is way up next to the house on the east side of the house, not between the house and the road. So when she said, I heard a, you know, I thought I heard a car in the driveway, you know, my first thought, where did you think you heard somebody like out in the circle around the corral by the dogs? Did you hear somebody pulling up way up on the east side of the house, which is by the way, you know, the house sits at a bit of an angle, Mm -hmm. like that could be like right in the back corner of the house is where the cars are usually parked. You know, that driveway could be all the way up there. And I'm not saying it's one or the other. What I'm saying is we don't know that. We don't know why she thought what she heard was something in the driveway. We talked about last week, like, could there have been a window open in the front of the house and or, or in the you know in the front of the house, which would make the sound sound like it's coming from there and if it's somewhere else. There's all those those questions. But then my major point is she if we look at what she said. When she heard the sound, she went, jumped up, went and looked out the, the window wherever it, you know she said the other side of the house which i think her bedrooms on the south or the northwest corner so she went to the the east side of the house looked out the house or looked out the window and didn't see anything saw no car saw no flash, headlights saw no taillights she took that to mean she must have imagined it okay and so the, and, and i just want to because there are people that disagree and that's okay it's 100% okay to disagree i just want to make clear the 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 conclusions I'm coming from are from the, how I see the logic of breaking down her statement. I don't think it's okay to say oh, the car must have already driven away by then, because that's not what she said. When she looked out the front and didn't see a car there, what did she think that meant? Yeah, that she she made it up. Yeah, that she had imagined it, mm-hmm. which means she expected that if there was a car in the driveway. And as quickly as she got to the window, even if it had driven away, she would have seen it. That wasn't a possibility in her mind. In her mind, the fact that there was no car there didn't compute with what she thought she heard. And so she thought she must have imagined it. Um, so the, 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 big, the big thing that I wanted to point out there that wasn't mentioned last week is that the driveway isn't just in front of the house. It runs all the way up the east side of the house. Um, and, and then also just reiterate that, that, that line of thinking. That that's why I'm so where I'm at is until I know and I've still been trying to get a hold of Jackie. Uh, I just can't seem to find a good number. I thought I had a really good email for her and that got bounced back to me. So I don't know. Um, but the point is, until I know what she heard, why she thought it was in the driveway. And as we talked about, there's a lot of possibilities there, right? Like that could just mean 
she heard the rumble of an engine close. Mm. And if you, you know, if living where she lived, if you heard a rumble of an engine very close to your house, where would you think it came from? Yeah, it would come from the road or the driveway. You wouldn't think it's coming from behind you. It doesn't mean it couldn't have been, right? Or did she hear tires on gravel? Did Was it the direction? Did, no, no, I'm sure the sound came from this direction. Or was it just that it was close? I, and I'm not saying one way or the other. All I'm saying is we don't know the answers to those questions. So for me, all possibilities have to stay open. The, the least possibility I'm comfortable with, comfortable leaving open is that it was actually a car in her driveway because she didn't see one in her driveway. She didn't see one down the road. She didn't see one down St. Bernard. She could see that whole area. And in her opinion, that meant there wasn't a car in the driveway. She must have imagined. So anyway, I know that was a tangent that I needed with this, but I just wanted to, I just had a note to myself to touch on that stuff. So jumping back to Steve for a second, and you kind of, you kind of touched on this about people getting interviewed and, and the onlookers. But there's a few listeners, Rebecca, Rachel, and Amy, that are asking if Steve had an alibi for the night of the murders or if he just showed up at the fire scene. And I, and I do believe you already said he was kind of one of the onlookers. He was one of the onlookers. The report says that, that his, and he mentioned it in his interview too, but in the, the report, when he was talking to Keener on the scene, Keener, he wrote the report later. Keener says at 10 o'clock at night that he interviewed, that he talked to um, Steve Russell. Okay. That's not possible because the truck, the fire the trucks truck. weren't even there yet. There yeah. was no police officers there. So we already know the time's off, but he had said that he was asleep and his friend like was banging on his door. A neighbor was banging. Or is that a neighbor was banging on his door? They never says who the neighbor is. So no, all we have for an alibi is that he says he was sleeping. He says a neighbor was banging on his door. It kind of seems like to me in reading Randy Paulson's interview and in that, that he knows him, he's close to him. He's, he's very close to his house. I mean, where Steve lives is on Alpine west of, um, uh, west of the, uh, of John and Vicky's house. Um, so you got the map up there. So you got, you got the crime scene. And then if you continue West, the, the first house you come to is Sharon Coleman's. Okay. And then if you go beyond Sharon Coleman's, there's that little road that goes up to the Northwest there. He's the one directly across the street from that on the South side of the road. Okay. So he's almost over to um, Palm Canyon. He's, he's he's towards Palm Canyon on the south side of Alpine. And Randy Paulson was down there on, is it Zurich Avenue that's below there? Yes. So they're on different roads, but their properties like kind of almost connect to each other. And and I don't remember if, I'm, if I heard this from someone or read it somewhere, but I thought that Randy Paulson went to the scene through like, not on the road, like on foot. Walked up through the oh, through the different property, yeah, through the property between Zurich uh, straight up to Alpine, which would mean he, he could have easily gone right past um, uh, Steve's house. I don't know that it was Randy that knocked on, on Steve's door. I can't say Steve has an alibi. That's all I know is he says he was asleep. Someone was knocking on his door, woke him up. He smelled the smoke, and then he went up to the scene and he was standing up there with everybody else. As I mentioned earlier, when I was going through the other reports, the other mentions, um, so Randy mentions that that. It was Steve Russell that had the black eye and that he had had the black eye because he had had, he was dealing with ice for months. He had been dealing with eye surgery um, and it had been off work because of it. Um, but Jim and Kendall Ellis, both when they were interviewed, talked about when they got there, the people they saw on the scene or at some point when the, the people that were on the scene, they mentioned Carissa Farley and they both mentioned Steve Russell being there. Um, so he was, it seems like he, so it seems like Tim and Araceli Summerly, Jim Ellis, Jim went there first, remember with Tim. And then Jim went back to his house and got uh, Kendall, his wife. They went back to the scene uh, and then they left and went, and then Barbara Wright got there 
And then Jim and Kendall and Barbara went to go help direct the fire trucks in. Uh, and then at some point, uh, Carissa Farley shows up. Uh, at some point, Steve Russell shows up. He's named, there's somebody named John and Sandy Woods, uh, that, that, that the Ellis is mentioned being there. And I think maybe even Randy Paulson, but we don't have an interview from them. I looked them up today in one of the reports, their name is mentioned. Hmm. Like at the, t- at the beginning of the report before there's like a, like fill in the blank fields and there's, I think it's John, um, John Woods and it has the address. And it has the date of birth on there, which means someone made contact with John Woods, yeah. who, again, was one of the people that the Ellis's or Paulson said was there. Um, they said, like, I think it was Sally and John Woods. But the fact that they had the birthday means somebody made contact with them, but there's nothing in the notes about what that person said. They lived on St. Bernard, uh, south, uh, a little way south of um, Barbara Wright's house. So, th- so they were, they would have been on one of the possible escape routes. Okay. That's interesting. Um, probably not the most like the most likely would be to go down Palm Canyon, which is the way the drive test was. Or if they went to the East to hit Chil- Chillin Heights. And mm-hmm. if they went past Chillin Heights, they would probably go all the way over to Jeroboa and go down. It's just interesting. That's two more names that I don't think we've heard anything about or mm-hmm. anything from, which mo- sadly nothing from nothing. And, th- and that's what was frustrating about that is I was reading through them like, oh, there's a name that we haven't heard before. Sally and Sally and John Woods. And then I start going through all these reports and then like, there it is. Sure enough, there's their name. Somebody talked to them, got their birthday or talked to John, got his birthday. No information about anything they said to him. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So Mary Ellen asks... During the neighbor Steve's call with police, Steve commented the victims were shot and the, and the detective said, we don't know yet. Steve expressed surprise and then seemed to reference a conversation with police because he said, you guys were excited when I had guns. Is there anything we can take from that? I think that probably came from that discussion on the crime scene. Okay. Uh, it wasn't in the report, of course. All it said in the report was uh, the stuff that he didn't like them and that he had a black eye. Uh but he he didn't say anything about um, guns in there. Okay. And then there's another question in here that says, does the file show any other neighbors that were talked to by police that we haven't heard about? That could be helpful. And I think we kind of just discussed that. But is there anything else? I think that's it. When I, I again, I, sp- I spent today going through uh, the, the, the reports from the people that were talking to the onlookers. And the, the only new names I came across were that Sally and John Woods. Um, Steve had been mentioned. Um, I didn't see any other new names on there. In Steve's interview, he said that there were trails behind the house that could be traveled by four-wheeler motorcycle and even golf cart. With the sound of the house fire mask the potential sound of motorcycles, a motor, it says a motorbike vehicle leaving the scene on the back trails. No, not the sound of the fire. Now, once the, once the fire trucks were there, the the revving of the fire engines and all that stuff. Yeah, that would that makes a ton of noise. It would drown out lots of stuff. Seems like they would be way gone by then. Oh, yeah, way gone. Yeah, but as far as the fire itself, no. Okay. No. It, I mean, think about a big bonfire. You know, 
crackling and popping like yeah there's a little bit of a noise there but not enough that's going to drown out a motor not a, a roaring noise yeah so Teresa asks and i know this has been asked multiple times in our youtube conversation do we know anything about forest uh nope just i think i looked up at one point where he lived which was down exactly where steve said he did it was a house down at the end of jerboa he's like i think i looked up he's like 90 he's in his 90s doesn't live in the area anymore i think somebody i think Teresa had done some research on that Teresa done um had said something to me today but uh there, he was never interviewed there's nothing in the file that i can find i did every kind of keyword search first name last name middle name um Never came across anything. Surprised me that they didn't at least ask anything of him, considering he was named. I mean, the, the Steve guy that they wanted to, or that talked to them said, "Go talk to Forrest." Did you were surprised? Well, no, I can't say yeah. that. Surprised? <laughs> like, no, I'm but disappointed. I'm frustrated because that they didn't interview him. Because you know, one of the theories that I'm or hypotheses that I'm kind of bouncing around was if, if what Jackie heard was some kind of a vehicle moving behind her house towards the east at the end of Jeroboam Road, as I mentioned, is exactly the same thing Steve was talking about that. The Jeroboam Road, uh, after it crosses Alpine, just turns into like a dirt trail that goes back in the desert behind the house. I thought that's a good place you could stash a car, a good place to escape when everybody's focused over here. You slide around the backside over there. That forest lived right there on that corner. Mm -hmm. He would be very a very good one to talk to to say, Hey man, did you did you hear anything that night? Did you see anything that night? I just that, that's hard to that's hard to fathom. They wouldn't talk to him. Yeah, and I and he is on my list to reach out to. Like I said, um, I, I've been doing some research on him. A couple of listeners have done done some research, but again, he's if he's it's unclear if he's alive. If he is, he's ninety four years old now. So this is less of a question, more of a comment. Jennifer H says Becky's clothing should be tested to see if the Ellis brothers' DNA or Joe's DNA is on it. And then to follow that up, Rachel asks if Joe was ever truly identified such that his DNA could be compared. He's identified. Like we but he's know. deceased. He's deceased. So it would depend if they had, um, if they had any, you know, I don't know if he had a record of he had, if he had DNA in the system somewhere. I mean, you could maybe, if you could get somebody in his family to agree, you could see if there's a familial match to maybe a brother or, you know, a mm-hmm. parent or a child or something. Uh, but I agree. Listen, I think that we should, the DNA should be tested against a- anyone that we know. I mean, I think it should be run through CODIS. I think that, first of all, I think we should do some MVAC on on the clothing that we have, the clothing and the shoe, and get as much DNA as we can. From there, I I want to you know run it through CODIS, and I think it should be compared to Joe, if we can get his DNA. The Ellis brothers, or we can get their DNA. Even Sidney Smith, who I don't think, you know, there's nothing to indicate to me he had anything to do with this. But again, he was walking around saying he was going to kill people mm-hmm. that day. Um, John Trapini, who we mentioned, like it should be tested. Like any any of these names that are coming up, test them, see if they can be ruled out. That's why I can sit here and confidently say that, uh, in my because in my opinion, that's most likely the killer's DNA that was on her body, which is why I can tell you. Robert and Christian are ruled out for of course, all the other reasons. So I can tell you Javier is ruled out. Jacob, Ron Friedley, um, I, I, all the John, obviously John's deceased, but like all those people, those people, it's not their DNA on there. So, so the, it is, and of course the absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. I understand that, but they certainly have to like move off of a box for me because, you know, someone put that DNA there. I think it's probably the killer and it's none of them. And as far as we know, nobody connected to them. 
So we should be testing it with as many, or comparing it to as many people as possible. So Dom in the YouTube asks, are any of the attorneys going to file motions for additional DNA testing? I don't know that it's something you can answer, but I want to make sure that it's asked. Yeah, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, it's been my suggestion after after talking to our DNA expert that we had on the show, um, Susanna Ryan. After that, I passed on her contact information to them. And that was my suggestion. Again, they don't, you know, they don't share with me what they're going to do. But but I certainly I certainly hope that that's the case. I I, I mean, put it this way. I would be shocked if that's not the case, if they're not working towards more DNA. Testing. Well, I really hope it is. So moving away from Steve, this is a question from Juan. And this is actually an interesting question. It, he's asking about the we killed her phone call. And it said, did this call happen around the same time that the claims of Becky being harassed by the Southside Indio gang members happened? I don't know, because I don't know. I don't I don't think so. Because I'd have to go back. That was that Alex, I think, and his mother mm-hmm. that they interviewed. That sounds right. Um, but I thought that that happened in the summer. Like, I thought they had said it was like July. Yeah. So so in my recollection of this, I do feel like that was earlier on and that this phone call was the, the week preceding her death. Yeah. The, this this phone call happened. If it's the one we have on the records, it was like, yeah, it was it was in September, like September 5th, I think is mm-hmm. what's ringing a bell. Um, and if memory serves that, that interview was talking about all that going on in the summertime. Now, that being said, if that's accurate, if there really were these people that were calling and harassing her and Becky, you know, you know, the, the story was that Becky was sitting at the table crying because these people wouldn't leave her alone. Certainly, you know, you know, they witnessed one incident of that. If that was going on, mm-hmm. there's nothing to say that it wasn't still going on. But as far as where it was reported or when it was reported, as far as I know, um, it was, it was a few months before. Okay. So Brianna kind of mentioned something that we, I think we all want. And uh, she just says that we're wishing we could hear more from Robert and Christian. Me too. Um, uh, so I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that, you know, I was putting together what's going to be, I hate, I called it a season finale. I don't, I'm, as you guys, I mentioned last week's follow up. I'm, I'm frustrated with where we're at right now because I like finale is certainly not the right word to use where we're at. Um, for starters, because I have a ton of stuff going on behind the scenes where I'll be continuing to investigate this, and which for me is is almost better because I can just work and investigate and not have to like, okay, then I also have to take 40 hours and put together an episode to record on this stuff. I can just do the investigative work. Um, but I had a plan for this week's episode. I had um, – uh, there, there were arrangements made with the prison to allow for me to do a phone interview with Robert so we could all hear from him at the end. Um, I just got word that none of that's happened. So, and, and this is what's, this is what's going on is just, you have, you have, there are lots of attorneys working on this case. I mean, you have Robert's attorneys, you have Christian's attorneys, you have sponsoring attorneys within the state of, you know, because like Robert's attorney is not from California. So they have to have another California, another attorney in California to work with them. So there's like all of these attorneys and they all need to really agree on, on what to do. And some have uh, obviously, you know, like Robert's attorneys have been like very pro what we're doing. They've been mm-hmm. like, yes, you know, they basically told the family, you know, give him the, give him the, give him the reins and let him, let him do his thing. He'll help us. And his listeners will help us. And you guys have helped them. Um, and then, you know, like Christian's attorney is more traditional, which is like, we don't, we don't talk to media during active litigation. stuff we're doing right now. So we don't want to talk to the media. Well, when it came to this, the whole, int- again, the plan was to do an interview with Robert Christian. I do have a statement from them. Um, that we'll be hearing from on, uh, you guys will be hearing on Sunday. Um, but essentially 
all the attorneys kind of got together and decided, let's just not do any interviews right now. Because where they're at right now, like, like they're filing federal habeas, which I think those those are filed, and, and then they still have to file the state habeas. There's stuff going on. You know, like people ask about the DNA testing. I don't know, but I you know that could be a thing that's happening right now is they're working with the prosecution to see if we, you know, if they'll agree to testing, if they'd file most for testing, if there's going to be testing. I think there was just all that going on. Long story short is um, they said, no, we're going to we're, we're going to we're going to not do an interview now. Um, it, as disappointing as it is, I completely understand it and respect it because as much as we as listeners want to hear from them, this isn't about our entertainment value. This yeah. is about their lives. And we have to respect that decision to keep that that confidential yeah especially from a lawyer's per, you know mm-hmm. decision to do it it, it, it and I, I mentioned in the patreon pre-show when we were talking about it that like it, it's like frustrating because like i just i want to at least to have some nice button where we can put on this right now and it's very difficult to do it's, it's been you know things are falling through and then we got i've got balls that are still in the air right now that i you know that i can't really talk about and um so anyway that's a very long answer to a very short question, <laughs> um, but we will not be hearing directly. Well, you will be in a way. I, I said they they did they did put together a statement, Robert and Christian together in in Senate, um, so I can read that. Uh, but uh, we will have another special guest coming on um, on on Sunday, and then uh, and then there's some stuff that I want to that I want to break down even a little bit further based on a lot of your questions. So we have a few questions about Ron, but I don't think we're going to get in that into that today. I think that's something you want to talk about another day, right? Yep, that's exactly what I was talking about. Yep. Um, so yeah, a lot of people were asking a lot more questions about um, about Ron and about the insurance money payout and all that. And um, I'm going to the first segment of Sunday's episode. I'm going to break down exactly what we do know on that, and that's not. I just I just don't want to do it. On the follow uh, on the follow up and kind of free flowing format, I want to sit down with the documents and go through what was released on probate, what we found from you know just everything we know about that money. So any of the stuff with Ron, I'm going to get into in the first segment on Sunday, just just so we have all those information in one place before we wrap things up, and then we'll get into our you know the statement from Robert Christian and and our special guest. Uh, and I do have a, a super chat here on the on the YouTube before we wrap things up uh, from Kelly. Thank you for the super chat says, while you can't tell us about your tips, are you able to tell us if it's anyone mentioned during the season? Uh, unfortunately, I can't, I can't answer that for you, Kelly. I wish I could L- listen. There's never been, it's never, ever something that I want to do is to keep information from you guys, because you guys are the most powerful tool that we have is all of you working together to dig into this stuff. But you guys find more things than I could ever find on my own, but you know, so, so much of the work you guys do. So all I want to do is just share, just throw everything at you guys because I know that you'll get together and figure that stuff out. But, um, but this is just one that I got to keep close to the close to the vest right now until, um, I get any more confirmation on it. I can't really discuss that at all right now. Um, and with that being said, I think that's, you know, I'm hoping things are going okay for, for Janet. I'm going to give her a call here when we get off the phone and, and check on her and see how she's doing. Um, make sure you tune in on Sunday. We're going to be, you know, come, you know, unless hell or high water cometh, I'm going to <laughs> uh, wrap the season. We will do another follow up next week uh, for this season, and then uh, we're going to move on to season 13. And I'm, I, I am again super excited about that. Um, I think, I think we, we have, we have, uh, we have, a, we have something, we have, we have something coming that's going to involve so much work from you guys, something I think we can all get behind. 
uh, that can make a huge difference in people's lives. Um, so I can't wait for you guys to all do that with me. And so that uh, will be coming up the the following week. I don't plan on taking a week off. I may take a week off uh, between the two. Um, but as of right now, I think that what we're probably going to do is kind of a premiere episode because it, it's one of those things where I kind of need to put out an episode explaining this is what we're going to do. Uh, so I can pull the string and you guys can uh, launch into that. So with that being said, I'm rambling. Um, <laughs> anything else to add, Zach? I got nothing else. So from me and Bob and Janet, we love you guys until next week. Yes, sir. See you next week. Love you guys. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and all music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com Our follow-up logo was created by me and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnik, Ginger Viola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found in all forms at Bob Ruff Truth. Janet can be found at Janet Varney. And Zach is at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. As for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Janet Varney. And this has been Truth and Justice. Uh, killing me. <laughs> they move so fast. Uh, Nick Bowman says, Bob, you look like you smell good today. Very astute observation, Nick. I just was saying in the pre-show that I showered right before the show. 
uh, it was a necessity. There's a very small room and, uh, and there was definitely a smell. So I took a shower. I smell terrific. You're welcome, Zach. I appreciate that. 